Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to a new episode of the TLS podcast. Yes, we are back after a little break. And thank you to everyone who kept in touch with pictures of their animals, Be the Cat, I Am Looking at You, and updates on their reading. Eamon in Spain, for instance, having heard me bang on about Cesare Pavese, recommended a quite odd-sounding little volume by Juan Talon, which is, he says, hard to describe, but a sort of novelisation of the final hours of Pavese and three other writers, including Anne Sexton. Simar Punit in New Delhi, meanwhile, has been enjoying, because how could you not, Mary McCarthy's The Company She Keeps, as well as thinking about embarking on Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry. Do it. That is off the back of Jeff Dyer's enthusiasm on this podcast about a month ago. These books sort of lead me to my next point, which is that since we last convened, several hundred books have been published, which seems to have sent critics and commentators into something of a frenzy. Lucy Dallas and I will be joined by another editor or two to pick our way through some of those in next week's episode. But for this week's show, I thought we might slow down and focus on just one new book. Sex and the City of Ladies, rewriting history with Cleopatra, Lucrezia Borgia and Catherine the Great by the historian and novelist Lisa Hilton. And I should say up front that this book is close to my own heart as one of the first books to be published by our new imprint, TLS Books. Lisa Hilton is with me now on the line from Venice. Hello, Lisa. Hello, it's lovely to be with you. Well, thank you for joining me. Um, let's start with a brief reading from the book just to sort of set things up. I think, I think you have the first few paragraphs for us. I do. Here we go. Sex and the City of Ladies, Chapter One. Unexpected Visitors. Here's a list of women. Livia Drusilla, the wife of a Roman emperor. Eleanor of Aquitaine. Mary, Queen of Scots. Catherine de Medici. Roxolana, the wife of Suleiman the Magnificent. Empress Shiji of China. Look them up, these women, and before you find out much else about them, you'll be informed that they were poisoners, murderers, adulterers. More often than not, historically renowned women seem to be bad women because power in women is allied with villainy. I was thinking about this at my desk in a quiet corner of a Venetian palazzo, surrounded by many books of different kinds, some histories, others biographies, or heavily annotated scholarly tracts. Outside, the lagoon was spread thickly with fog, and occasionally I heard a boat's siren sounding across the plain of water. 
My mind was weary. I had spent the days struggling with these weighty tomes. I lowered my copy of Michel Foucault's History of Sexuality and decided to find something more amusing to read. I chanced on a slight volume bound in faded red cloth among a pile sent from a library. I must have ordered it, though I did not recall doing so. It was the Book of the City of Ladies by Christine de Pizan, and, like many other works nowadays, it is said to be written in praise of women. Now, what what do we need to know about this book, this book that inspired your book? Um, it's a sort of retelling of a hugely important feminist book, The Book of the City of Ladies, which was written by Christine de Pizan in 1405, so more than 600 years ago. Uh, Christine was the earliest professional woman writer of whom we know in Europe. There had been professional women writers before, but they'd all been um, nuns or allied to religious orders. Christine lived in the secular world. She was widowed with three young children at quite a young age, and she made her living by her pen. She started off as a copyist and went on to become an extremely uh, original and popular writer. Um, And her book, The City of Ladies, is effectively the first strike across the bows at the patriarchy. In it, Christine uses the mini biographies of many, many women from history to argue that women are as intellectually capable and of worthy, as worthy of a place in society as men are. I mean, the book also shows that this, this idea of nastiness, and I use that word for its, its modern political resonance, it, since 1405, this idea that in a woman, uh, nastiness goes hand in hand with power, it was already really entrenched at that point? Well, very much so. I mean, Christine in, includes some, some quite sort of horrific examples uh, amongst her biographies, uh, Medea being one, uh, Berenice of Cappadocia, who tore her enemies to pieces and drove, drove over the remnants in her chariot being another. But her point is that virtue doesn't reside in the body. Virtue for Christine within the Christian context in which she was writing is a matter for the soul. And she argues that women's souls are as capable of virtue as those of men. And I mean, the context you you pointed out there is is a very, it's a religious one. The criteria for citizenship into her her city of ladies is is worthiness, is, is virtue. So you say it is said to be written in praise of women, this book. That's a very careful way of putting it, acknowledging as it does uh, that standards, what is and isn't praiseworthy, are not universal or eternal. Um, yeah. That's that's something that certainly popular history tends to shy away from, I think. I mean, Christine is, is, a, is an absolutely brilliant writer. She's also pretty tricksy. Um, she herself is problematic to some feminist com- commentators because she seems to play the devil's advocate. Um, the book, The City of Ladies, takes the form of a dream vision uh, where she's visited by three speakers, she, the writer, and she narrates the dream to her readers. And the dialogue um, with reason, justice and virtue takes the form of Christine, the speaker, quite disingenuous genuinely arguing the case for misogynist critics and saying, well, I've read this book, which says that women are stupid. And I've read this book that says women are lustful. I've read this book that says women are lazy. Um, And the the three virtues argue her out of her own position. But this this is quite a sort of complex strategy to take. And some contemporary feminist critics have seen, in a sense, a a degree of conservatism in, in Christine's arguments, as though she actually espouses the views which she's attacking. I don't think that. The book, if you read it carefully, is not only extremely funny, but very much on the side of women. And it really satirises what Christine saw as the absurdities of the misogynist critics who surrounded her at the time in early 15th century France. Um, and in a sense, I mean, the form, this form of the dream dialogue, as you say, with the author playing devil's advocate, 
um, it's, it's as well as being so involving as a device, it seems particularly well suited somehow to this this particular area of history, of political history. It seems uh, to chime somewhat with second wave feminism's line, you know, that the personal is political, perhaps. Very much so. And I think because it was written so long ago, it's easy to overlook quite how radical uh, Christine was being. I mean, we said earlier that she was writing in the context of a, of a very Christian society, and this is true, but she's not afraid to take on um, the theological niceties of her time. Um, she argues, for example, that um, the idea that man was made in God's image is an absurdity because God God, of course, has no image. God has no physical entity. And what the Bible is referring to is the soul. And therefore, since the soul has no image, we simply can't know what it looks like. And women can look just as much like God as men can. I mean, in another context, she, she could almost risk being um, imprisoned for heresy. So she was a very, she was a very brave writer. Um, and she's also one, I think, yes, who, who definitely resonates with, with, with you know, the politics of second wave feminism in that she thinks the personal is very much a matter of politics. But I think she's also, got something to say to and about uh, I don't even know which phase of feminism we're at at the moment are we actually <laughs> now? Um, let's say fourth wave feminists um, in that she's determined not only to popularize and re-establish the reputations of historically well-known women but she also revoices, insofar as she can anonymous women who she's discovered from the past there's a really touching anecdote about a certain Roman matron who breastfed her own starving mother while they were both incarcerated in prison. And so although many of the, the, the mini biographies that Christine cites are of women who would have been well known at the time, there are also women whose voices hadn't previously been heard. And I think that's something that we feel is particularly relevant today. Your little joke there about which wave of feminism <laughs> we're on currently does does sort of bring us to another point, though, um, about where we are now. Uh, the kind of the commercial annexation of feminism has quite a lot to answer for, doesn't it? Well, I think so. Um, and I, I, I think that's that's something I, I try to discuss in the book that um, I mean, I, I suppose a, a parallel example would be the recent uh, Black Lives Matter protests and the way that so many companies and corporations immediately jumped on the, the bandwagon and, and sort of paid lip service to the idea of the politics of the Black Lives Matter movement without necessarily really engaging in it. Uh, and I think that whilst it's in many ways a wonderful thing that feminism is no longer a dirty word, it's true that the idea of feminism has been very much taken over by commercial and corporate interests. And I think that's produced a great deal of hypocrisy, um, whether it's fashion houses who vaunt their feminist credentials whilst making fortunes in places like Saudi Arabia, where women have virtually no rights, or whether it's feminism being used to sell, you know, sparkly accessories, mugs, cushions, hair slides. Um, that's all very well and good, but it's not really what feminist activism is about um, and I think that reminding ourselves of that by reading a book that was written 600 years ago um, really shows us that some of the issues which Christine flags up still haven't been rectified in our supposedly feminist age. Now it's quite a list of names that you begin your own book with. Yeah. I remember sort of batting them about a little bit in the earlier stages. I think I may have suggested something like waiting to see you brought the best chat. Um, how did you end up narrowing it down to the three women that you do write uh, about? Cleopatra, Lucrezia Borgia and Catherine the Great. Um, I think I chose them because I mean, the, the book is in no sense um, an attempt at fulsome biography of any of the, the three women mentioned. and That, that would be a, a stupid thing to claim. However, I suppose it's the 
that Catherine Cleopatra and Lucrezia are all extremely notorious women. And they're not just notorious in Anglo-Saxon culture, that they have kind of worldwide fame. So I suppose if I had to choose three of the women to, to use as examples in the updating of, of Christine's book, it had to be them. Uh, they're also great fun. Um, I, <laughs> I, could, I could really imagine them as characters. And equally, um, because they're so famous, we think we know all about them. Um, and yet there are so many things that, we, we simply don't know which were there to be discovered. I mean, I, I, I didn't think that, you know, we, I say somewhere in the book that, you know, we all know about Catherine you know, not being true about the horse. But nonetheless, we do tend to see the lives of these three women through um, a prism of scandal, of sexual transgression. Um, and it was a way briefly and I hope playfully, perhaps entertainingly, of reconsidering not only their reputations, but the way we look at women in history in general. And so what then, I mean, it certainly is all of those things that you've said, entertaining and, and, and witty and um, and just so involving, as I said, as a device. Um, but so what, you know, what in a nutshell with these figures as your as your uh, as your guides, what would you what is your thesis? I think my thesis is that even though we live 600 years after Christine wrote her book, even though we live in um, a supposedly feminist age, we still categorize women as other a woman is not a writer she's a woman writer a woman is not a ruler she's a woman ruler her position is always implicitly to some extent anomalous in a way that is simply not the case for men um, and i think we need to reconsider the way we write about history the way we write about powerful individuals and arguments from both feminist history and conventional history i think sometimes overplay the role that femininity has or our ideas about femininity when considering um, historical fi uh, figures such as Catherine, Lucrezia and Cleopatra. And uh, presumably this is this also is, is something to do with, uh, it's like a symptom of the, the fact that we certainly in the West are and have been geared to find exceptionality in our social and political system. So that if, you know, if someone is not a white man of a certain age and background and yet has achieved greatness in whatever field, we, we tend to obsess over what it is that most obviously marks them as different be it sex or skin color or age or, or whatever and it has this tremendously distorting effect on the way we tell a story absolutely and I, I think there's, there's also um, a concomitant effect which is that of victimhood we're not really allowed to, for, for powerful historical women to be bad in rehabilitating their reputations they have to be seen as victims of patriarchy so Cleopatra or, or, or Catherine or Lucrezia weren't you know not power hungry murderesses they were victims of, of a culture which they had to claw their way to the top of like it or not and so I think there's, there's, there's always kind of a, a, a sort of imbalance between the way we see powerful figures because of these qualifications either as you suggestive race or of gender and the book is I suppose a way of by, by no means solving that problem but certainly questioning it kind of saying maybe there's a different way we could look at history and maybe we could use the ways that these three very well-known figures have been used to ask about it. And this feeds in I think to a useful idea you you bring in towards the end of your book about Adel and Zulm. Yeah. Um, can you unpack those terms for us sort of and explain how they apply here? So um, Catherine the Great was an object of great fascination uh, to the Ottoman Empire, who were, of course, her, her political and, and enemies and territorial competitors. Um, the Ottoman diplomat in the 18th century, um, Ahmed Vassif, qualified two um, 
I suppose you could translate them as, as yes, uh, criticisms of Catherine. Adult, which is a thing which is in its place, and zulm, which means something in a place which is not its own, something which is wrong. And he described Catherine's power as zulm. Because she was a woman, there was something off about the fact that she wielded quite such an extraordinary amount of power. It was something which is unfathomable. And I think that's interesting because whilst that's highly understandable in the context of an 18th century Ottoman diplomat who sees a woman ruling a vast country and overcoming the, the armies of the great Ottoman Empire in battle, it's this distinction that we, we still seem to preserve today. We still seem to think there's something sort of different, if not wrong, certainly different about a woman in a position of power. It's something that we have to explain away, that we have to make allowances for, whether positive or negative. It, a woman can't seem to exist without the category of women. Um, women are always bound by, by their biology, whatever that biology may consist in, by their corporeality, in a way that men simply aren't. And I found those two terms, which are, are not necessarily all that commonly used, certainly in Anglo-Saxon history, extremely helpful in addressing the subject. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You look at all of your women. Um, as we've said, there are these three kind of potted biographies uh, at, at the heart of the book. And all of them, you look at them through such a clear lens with none of the filters or agendas that we so often get I think I was particularly moved by your chapter on uh, Lucrezia and by how sad her story is and while I'm you know while I'm very careful to not go down the victimhood line there is a very clear sense it seems of of, of her being both victim and perpetrator in a sense is a, a really vivid sense of how for all the power the obsession with her sex her body it, it must have made her life pretty unbearable i think it did i th i think she was you know she was such a controversial figure in her own time and it was something she fought against all her life um one thing i noted in in the 1520s when she was uh, duchess of ferrara she'd already had four children by by her husband 
and she took an increasing interest in the religious life. She became a patron of solitary nuns and of women's education, which is something she had in common with Catherine the Great. But she had a spiritual counsellor called uh, Tommaso Cajani. And in the 1520s, she wrote him a series of letters asking for lessons, I suppose, elucidation of theological points. And one of her letters asks for a gloss on Psalm 45, which contains the, one of the verses, Hearken, O daughter, and consider, and incline thine ear, forget also thine own people and thy father's house. Now, if your father was the you know, notoriously wicked Borgia Pope, it would seem that Lucrezia was, was quite concerned about the effect that this had on, on, her, on her soul and also on, on her own reputation. So yes, she could, never, she could never really escape her sexuality, but I wouldn't say she was a victim so much as... I don't know, a prisoner of circumstance, which is not quite the same thing because she, she did wield an enormous amount of power and was able to do an enormous amount of good. I think there's something else that we need to recall about all these women and be very careful of when we think about them as victims. I mean, whatever else you think of Cleopatra and Catherine the Great and indeed to a slightly lesser extent, Lucrezia Borgia, victims, they were not. They were huge. <laughs> They were hugely powerful. They were, frankly, all of them slave owners. Again, that's that's an unpleasant thing to think about, but it's it, it's the truth. They owned human souls and thought nothing of it. They were not victims in any conventional sense, but that doesn't mean that they weren't human or that there are not aspects of their lives which can be very poignant and moving. Um, the story of Catherine the Great, I mean, so she came to the throne... Uh, you know, not as some wild exception. Again, there had been, in fact, a number of women on the throne just before her. And even in Lucrezia's day, the idea of a woman in power was not unusual. But do you think that they would have thought about other powerful women before them? Would they, you know, to borrow that line from Virginia Woolf, would they have thought back through their mothers in the way that people might tend to do today, conceiving of themselves as part of a process, a sort of, you know, sort of holding themselves in a category apart from, in inverted commas, normal rulers? I don't know. A few years ago, I wrote a book called Elizabeth Renaissance Prince, um, which sought to look at Elizabeth I from the perspective of uh, European politics at the time. Elizabeth always thought of herself, signed herself, considered herself a prince. It was as though power transcended the conventional categories of gender. Power was gendered masculine, therefore Elizabeth gendered herself masculine. I don't know whether Catherine, Cleopatra or Lucrezia might have considered themselves to be part of a long line of female rulers or whether they might consciously have modelled themselves uh, on, on male models. I mean, it's interesting to note, for example, that one of the few extant images of, of Cleopatra as queen are the coin, the, the coin medals, which show her kind of refashioned as basically a, a Roman emperor. I mean, she doesn't look very much like anyone except possibly uh, Mark Antony. Um, this isn't because, you know, she lived in a terrible sexist time where you know, a powerful woman had to look like a man. It was simply that the image of power was the image of Rome and in order for people to, to use and, and value the coins they had to look familiar so I don't think we can read too much into that but the idea of, of, of looking back over a line
design of ruling women, which is what Christine is doing in uh, the City of Ladies. I'm not sure that would be necessarily something that would have been really available to either of the three women I discussed. Nonetheless, it's something that does come into the book. They have quite a lot of chat between themselves um, about what kind of rule they had. And they, and they, they sort of send each other up a bit as well in terms of their reputations. Uh, it's, it's not entirely um, serious book in that sense. I hope it's yeah, quite playful, quite funny. Yeah, absolutely is. And and there's obviously the, the essential point uh, as well is that Cleopatra is the only one of the women who Christine might actually have considered allowing in and she decides against her in the end. The other two hadn't it's hadn't been born. So it's chagrin. I mean, Cleopatra is, is quite peeved that Medea's Exactly and she's not. Well, until she realises that it's probably not somewhere she would actually really like to live. Exactly. Um, but it is quite interesting to to imagine. I mean, I wonder whether and with whether either of the other two, whether Lucrezia or Catherine the Great, might have been aware of Christine de Pizan's work and 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 read it. That's a really interesting question. Um, I mean, Christine was writing in French. A translation was made in English in the 16th century, and then another wasn't made into English until the 20th century. But both uh, Catherine the Great and Lucrezia were fluent French speakers. Uh, Christine was originally actually Venetian. She moved from uh, Venice to the court of France with her father when she was quite a young child, but she was of Italian origin. It would be really intriguing to speculate uh, on whether either Catherine or Lucrezia might have heard of her. And I, I, I think certainly Lucrezia might because one of the things that Christine wrote before she wrote uh, The City of Ladies was a critique of the sort of smash hit uh, best-selling uh, the Roman de la Rose, the, the poem, I suppose it was the latter-day equivalent of the Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, it was, you know, Europe's most salacious bestseller for quite some years. And Christine considered it an extremely silly book uh, and wrote quite a, a damning critique of it. So it's quite possible that a uh, hundred odd years later, Lucrezia would, would have heard of that, yes. Because we have for so long treated women in history differently to men, we focused on them as as humans with bodies and private lives and, and love lives, we, we do tend to sort of humanise them more and so to imagine ourselves in their place with their choices. And you're in, this, in, in your book, there are some really poignant moments where, you know, Cleopatra is left alone again, a single mother, you know, just simple things like that that you can't really imagine being written about uh, in the same way when it comes to a male ruler. I wonder if there is something positive to be taken from that process, that process of kind of humanising power. Absolutely. Uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's very strange, as, as you say, that we, we always write about women, including their emotional and physical lives, as part of their political or authoritative lives. And we simply don't do that with men. I mean, me conventional biographies of men don't tend to attribute their decisions to emotional or sexual matters. Um, I don't know, a good example would be, say, Winston Churchill. When do we ever hear anything interesting about his sex life or indeed lack thereon? Um, it's mostly about what he was or wasn't and, eating. And, and, mostly yes. was. And, and Lucrezia makes a, a rather vulgar joke in the book, you know, the, the famous line about Cleopatra's nose um, having changed the course of history. And, and Lucrezia says, well, you know, what if Napoleon's cock had been an inch longer? Would that have changed the course of history? Um, and of course, we don't know. I'm, I'm not suggesting at all that we ought to write history from the point of view of emotionality or, or sexuality. But I think the balance could certainly be interestingly evened out. Absolutely. Well, um, Lisa Hilton, thank you so much for joining me today. 
It's a huge pleasure. Thank you very much. Sex and the City of Ladies, rewriting history with Cleopatra, Lucrezia Borgia and Catherine the Great is out now. Next week, Lucy Dallas will be back here with me and we will be elbow deep in books. Till then, take care and goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.